I, I do a podcast. I'm not, I'm not interested in your podcast. But these are these are wolves. Truth be told, I, I oftentimes lay awake at night trying to figure out how I can get rid of wolves in the church. We are unabashedly, unashamedly Clarkian. And so the next few statements that I'm going to make, I'm probably going to step on all of the Vantillian toes at the same time. And this is what we do at Simple Riff around the radio, you know. We are polemical and polarizing Jesus style. I would first say that to characterize what we do as fashion is itself fashion. It's not hate, it's history, it's not fashion, it's the Bible. Jesus said, Woe to you when men speak well of you, for their fathers used to treat the false prophets in the same way, as opposed to blessed are you when you have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness. It is on. We're taking the gloves off. It's time to battle. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions of his head as he lay in his bed. Then he wrote down the dream and told the sum of the matter. Daniel declared, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea, and four great beasts came up out of the sea different from one another. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. Then as I looked, its wings were plucked off, and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man, and the mind of a man was given to it. And behold, another beast, a second one, like a bear. It was raised up on one side. It had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth, and it was told, Arise, devour much flesh. After this I looked, and behold, another, like a leopard with four wings of a bird on its back. And the beast had four heads, and dominion was given to it. After this I saw in the night vision, and behold, a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth, it devoured and broke in pieces, and stamped what was left with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. I considered the horns, and behold, there came up among them another horn, a little horn, before which three of the first horns were plucked up by its roots. And behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth speaking great things. Daniel chapter 7, 1 through 8. This podcast is a member of the Bible Thumping Wingnut Network. All right, welcome everybody to another podcast episode with Semper Reformanda Radio. Hi, welcome to Theology Gals. Welcome everyone to the Logical Belief Ministries podcast. Well, welcome to the School of Biblical Hermeneutics. Welcome everybody to Grappling with Theology. What is going on, guys? Shine as lights coming at you. Well, welcome to Slick Answers. Good evening, and welcome to Conversations from the Port. Hello and welcome to Living in the Vine. This is the Council of Google Plus. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to the Bible Thumping Wingnut Podcast. The Bible Thumping Wingnut Network. 12 podcasts, one network. Check them out at BibleThumpingWingnut.com. Looking for that perfect track for your next evangelism outreach? Look no further. 
At TrackedPlanet.com, we have solid biblical tracks that are a breeze to hand out. They are beautifully designed and are the highest quality tracks available. With over 80 different designs in stock and literally hundreds more available by custom order, we're sure to have just the right one for you. You can get any of our items printed with your church or ministry information or have us design a brand new tract just for you. We are committed to the solid biblical message of law to the proud and grace to the humble. Each tract is firm on the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the necessity of repentance and faith in salvation. Come check us out at TrackedPlanet.com and make sure you use coupon code BTWN at checkout for 10% off your entire order. That's TRACTPlanet.com, coupon code BTWN. We are back with Tim Kaufman. My name is Tim Shaughnessy, and this is Semper Reformanda Radio. I hope that you got something out of last week's episode. I know that I listened to it probably about three times. Tim, I think there was somebody else who said that they listened to it at least twice, and they said that it was fantastic. So, hey, I'm really grateful that you're here, that you've uh, put in all this time, work, and effort, and I know that you've been studying this stuff for years. So I'm really grateful that you're here. We're going to pick up on part two of looking at the Danielic timeline or chronology. The focus of our text was Daniel chapter 7, and we're going to be looking at the fourth beast in particular. But before we get into that, and I'm going to ask you to give a little bit of a recap, but before we get into that, I want to pose a question to you that we've talked about before, and I realized that we didn't address this last week, but that's this. Do you, as a former Roman Catholic, find Roman Catholicism in the text just merely because of a, of a personal bias against Rome because you came out of Roman Catholicism. Because I think that sometimes we do have a tendency to do that. Um, I know I've heard the same thing about Islam. You know, uh, people who convert out of Islam, they want to see Islam as the great antagonist, as the Antichrist. And so, what we're going to be doing, a lot of it does pertain to Roman Catholicism. We are we are going to be uh, saying things like we do believe that Roman Catholicism is is Antichrist. Uh, we do believe uh, that the Roman Catholic system, the the Roman Catholic Church, has a has a role to play in the texts of Scripture. And so, I want to ask you and give you an opportunity to respond to the notion that there might be a personal bias on your part, because you are a former Roman, Roman Catholic. Well, thank you, Tim. I appreciate the, the question. I appreciate the warm welcome I always receive. I'm glad that people are listening to the episodes and enjoying them. Uh, I think that the question is a very reasonable one, and it's one that I've encountered many times. It's probably important to note that if I were to address the eschatology matter in ignorance, never having experienced Roman Catholicism, uh, people might say, well, you don't know what you're talking about because uh, you were never Roman Catholic and you don't understand. If I address the eschatological matters from the perspective of knowledge and experience, having been a Roman Catholic, then people can dismiss it saying that you are only doing this because you're angry about Roman Catholicism, you feel like they defrauded you, and now you want to get your vengeance and get back at them, and this is just a personal vendetta against them. And the reason I offer those two extremes of a spectrum of responses is that I am never going to win the ad hominem argument. 
It's just, you know what? If someone doesn't want to believe this, they're going to find a reason to discredit it. And I accept that. That there's no use in going down the path of the ad hominem argument because then I start talking about how even though I have never been Roman Catholic, I am eminently qualified based on the diligence of my studies, et cetera, et cetera. And then suddenly the whole conversation is defending me and my studies. Or if I say, yes, I did come out of Roman Catholicism. I wanted to be a priest. I was taught Marian devotion from a very young age, a cradle Catholic. And when I moved to Alabama in 1989, I was a defender of Roman Catholicism to the great irritation of many of my Protestant friends. And and then I have to start defending the vastness of my experience and knowledge of Roman Catholicism. And in the end, the, the question and the objection ends up shifting the conversation from the text of scripture and this, the historical record and has it back on me. And you know what? If people want to assign some sort of personal bias to my conclusions, there's nothing I can do to stop them. It's an ad hominem argument. And I want to simply get back to the facts. And the facts is what we'll be talking about today. I've, I've often pointed out that almost all of the reformers, if not 100% of them, at least the major ones, thought that Roman Catholicism was Antichrist, the Beast of Revelation 13, the Little Horn of Daniel 7. And when I raise that, people will say, yeah, but the uh, reformers all had a personal bias against Roman Catholicism too. And so they would be inclined to conclude that Roman Catholicism was the Beast of Revelation 13. And you know what? We're we could go forever trying to deny personal bias or embellish our credentials to show that we're eminently qualified to discuss it. But this isn't about me. It's not about a personal bias. It's not about having been experienced at Roman Catholicism or, or not having experience in Roman Catholicism. It's about what the apostles warned about and what ended up happening. And that's what we're talking about today. Well, and I'll just go ahead and add to that, that I am not persuaded by you because of a personal bias. And I've said before that I came out of the Roman Catholic Church. And I know that last week I said that I also said that I grew up Baptist and I, I used to watch Dr. Jack Vanampee, uh late at night. And uh, it might sound contradictory, but my dad's a Roman Catholic. My mom was a Baptist and um, my parents uh, actually sent me to a, a Baptist private school because they were both teachers and they appreciated the, the, um, what the, the private school was doing. And so they chose for me to go there. And so as I was a Roman Catholic coming out of that, while in the private school, I uh, became engrossed in dispensational theology. And uh, eventually I, I left the, the, I basically stopped calling myself a Roman Catholic and I basically became a, a born again Christian. And for years, I rejected the views that you're talking about because I was coming to the table with my own presuppositions about what the Antichrist was going to look like. And I remember that I had a, a cousin who said, you know, I believe that the Pope is the Antichrist. And I immediately rejected it. And I, I was like, no, this guy's not going to do everything that I saw happen in in the movie, you know, uh, Left Behind or whatever. Right, right. And I just, I was like, this guy's not a Nikolai Carpathia or whatever that guy's name is. And and I just absolutely rejected it. And once again, I point back to the Trinity Foundation. We talked about that last week, uh, where I read an article by John Robbins, and I started to realize that that this is where the reformers landed. And so we're going to get into all of that. But this was a view that I actually rejected for a number of years 
after I became converted. And now I'm absolutely convinced of it. And uh, so we're just going to jump right into where we left off last week. I believe it was we were looking at the, the ten horns of the fourth beast and the little horn that comes up and removes three. So, Tim, I'm going to ask you to to lead us in our discussion. If you want to give a recap or just uh, wherever you want to take us, uh, we'll just we'll just give it off to you. Okay. Well, thanks for that introduction. So this uh, this is the... Uh, the second half of the uh, first episode, I suppose, because we ended up last week at the point where the Roman Empire was divided 13 ways. And this matters to us because, as we mentioned last week, when we read in Daniel chapter 7 that the fourth beast had 10 horns and, and then the little horn arises and has removed three of the horns the way that has traditionally been read and it's been read this way for um, maybe two thousand years or longer that that the little horn is going to take three of the ten horns and that's actually something that daniel never says he says the little horn comes up among ten having removed three and if you look at the text you'll see that he never actually says that the first horns were were a total of ten, and he never says that the little horn removes three of the ten horns. He says he removes three of the first horns. And the reason that we were able to go back through the text and understand that is because we saw, as we walked through each of the four beasts of Daniel chapter 7, that it was depicted at the conclusion of its reign as an empire just prior to, to the rise of the next empire. So we see the lion is after Nebuchadnezzar has been given his reason back and he stands on two feet like a man and his heart is given back to him. And he's uh, this is being revealed in the first year of his successor who ends up being the last king of the Babylonian empire. And then the bear is lifted up on one side and we saw and understood based on Daniel 8, and our understanding of the two horns of the ram in Daniel chapter 8, that the bear being lifted up on one side was evidence that uh, the Persians are already reigning and the time of the Medes are well behind them. It's In other words, it's the end of the reign of the Medo-Persian Empire. And then we saw the Greek Empire was depicted with four heads long after the death of Alexander the Great, who was the first head, that, that head is, is gone, and now there are four remaining based on Daniel chapter 8. We know that it started as one horn. It was broken. Four came up in its place. So we end up looking at the, the leopard of Daniel chapter 7, uh, seeing that the Greek Empire is depicted in its final phase before the rise of the Roman Empire. And so we get to the Roman Empire, which is the fourth terrible beast, and it has ten horns. And we notice that the next horn that comes up has removed three comes up among ten and that is the next empire on the earth it is the fifth empire of daniel's visions and so each one is depicted as it stood just before the next empire took over and what we'll find when we examine history today we'll find that in the end the little horn did in fact come up uprooted three of the 13 horns and came up among the remaining 10. The reason we know that Daniel was aware of and in fact knew of 13 horns in Daniel chapter 7 
is because if Antichrist, or say if the little horn of Daniel 7 had removed three of the ten horns, there should have only been seven horns remaining. And yet what we find in Revelation chapter 17, when the lamb returns, according to the description there, the beast and ten horns have gathered to make war against him. If there had only been ten horns total, and the little horn removed three, because that little horn is the beast of Revelation 13, if, if there had only been ten, and little horn removed three, then in Revelation chapter 17, we should have seen the beast and seven horns gathered to do battle with the lamb. But instead, there are still ten horns. And, and this goes back to our discussion on how we approached the, the text here, is that it has to make sense, it has to be consistent, it has to be logical and coherent. And the only way you can end up with ten horns at the very end when the lamb returns and the little horn removing three prior to coming up is for there to have been 13 horns and a little horn comes up removes three and then comes up among the remaining 10 for a total of 13 horns so the reason this is very very significant to us today because we concluded the last episode by saying that in the latter part of the fourth century the roman empire was in fact divided 13 ways and there was in fact someone who came up and claimed three of those 13 geographic regions for himself. And that's the guy we're warned about. And it has been historically missed because historically people have been looking for a 10-way division of the Roman Empire. And they were, they were thinking, and this is very consistent in the historical record among the church fathers and even among the reformers, that as soon as the Roman Empire divided 10 ways, that would be the sign that Antichrist was about to rise and then he would remove three of the ten, and then history would continue just the way it was predicted in Daniel 7 and in Revelation. The reason this was missed is because they were expecting a ten-way division. When a thirteen-way division occurred, nobody took note. And because of that, they missed that there was a guy who came up and claimed three of the thirteen for himself and came up among the remaining ten. And that's where we're going to start today. So what happened in history that caused the Roman Empire to to be divided 13 ways, and when that happened, who claimed three of the 13 dioceses for himself? And that's where we pick up today. So what we're going to start with is why the Roman Empire ended up in a place that it had to be divided at all. And it starts in 226 AD, where Rome finds itself facing, Rome the Empire, finds itself facing an enemy to the east, the Sassanian Empire. They started making incursions in 226 AD and troubled the eastern frontier of the Roman Empire for centuries beyond. After the Sassanian Empire arose to the east and started troubling Rome, the Roman Empire from there, the Roman Empire started having internal troubles as well. It's historically, it's been called the crisis of the third century. And it's a period from 235 to 284 AD. And during that period of about 50 years, 27 different men claimed to be emperor of the Roman Empire. It was a state of continuous civil war. One after another was coming in, taking over Rome, and claiming to be emperor. Now, in 284 AD, Diocletian came to power. 
and he decided that he needed to reorganize the empire to stop the ceaseless civil wars because it was going to be the absolute ruination of the Roman Empire unless somebody did something about it. So what he did, he decided that the administrative center of the empire could no longer be Rome, the city, and he divided the empire into four separate sections, each one with a capital city. And this is the beginning of the Tetrarchy. And the four capital cities were split between two Caesars and two Augusti. And the purpose was to make it absolutely impossible for an army to conquer the empire simply by invading a single city. In other words, he, he removed the vulnerability of the Roman Empire. It was vulnerable because anybody could march on Rome. And once they've marched on Rome, Rome has a new sheriff in town. And, and then they start all over again. Then the next person comes and he wants to be in charge of the empire. So he invades Rome. Well, what, what uh, Diocletian did was make that impossible. He created four separate capital cities. Um, and it was ruled by four tetrarchs in the four tetrarch capitals of Nicomedia, which is in modern Turkey, in Sirmium, which is in modern Serbia, uh, Mediolanum, which is modern name Milan in Italy, and Augusta Trevorum, which is, uh, I'm sorry, Trevorum in modern day Trier in Germany. Now, each of those four tetrarch capitals was in charge of three dioceses. So, four tetrarch capitals. Each one has three dioceses for a total of 12 dioceses. And this was intended to separate the administrative responsibility of the empire from Rome, placing the administrative responsibility at the four capitals. So each diocese had a vicarius or a vicar, and the vicar was responsible for managing the diocese and reporting to his assigned tetrarch um, emperor, either a Caesar or an Augustus, depending on which city he was reporting to. Now, just to, to give an example, Antioch was the capital city of the Diocese of Oriens, which is uh, literally, it's the Diocese of the East, and that stretched from Libya all the way to Syria. But that capital city had a vicar or a count, is, uh, sometimes it's recorded as a count. That count was responsible for administering the Diocese of the East and reported to his Tetrarch leader. Okay, Milan was the capital city of the Diocese of Italy. And this is very important. I, I want to I want to make sure we understand this. From the time from about 296 AD, when the reorganization took place, until the latter part of the 4th century, Rome as a city was not the capital of the Diocese of Italy. It's very important to notice that. Milan was the capital city of the Diocese of Italy. And the vicar of Italy resided in and ruled from Milan. And Milan was also one of the Tetrarch capitals. Now, what's interesting about this, if you think about the way the Roman Empire was divided under Diocletian, is that there were top-tier metropolises or metropoli, like Sirmium, Milan, Trier, and uh, Nicomedia. Then there were second-tier metropoli that were the uh, capital cities of the respective dioceses, like Antioch and Milan. Now, Rome was granted titular honors and, in fact, had a vicar of its own who administered a few suburbs of the city of Rome. And, in fact, um, we see this reflected in the earliest Latin version of the canons of Nicaea, where it is shown that the vicar, the, the bishop of Rome, 
is only responsible for a few suburbs adjacent to the city. He's not actually in charge of the entire diocese. And what's very interesting over this period is we see uh, a correlation between what happens in the administrative administration of the empire in the civil sense and also the administration of the empire in the ecclesiastical sense, where the, the bishops began, the bishops who resided in the diocesan capitals, the metropolises of the, of the diocese, ended up being very, very prominent. And so the bishop of Antioch was quite prominent. The bishop of, of, uh, of Milan was quite prominent. And in fact, the bishop of Rome was relegated to a third-tier metropolis when it came to how the total empire was administered from an ecclesiastical perspective. So, so the, the point of emphasizing that it is Milan, not Rome, that is the capital city of the Diocese of Italy. And this information is recorded for us in what's called the Laterculus Veronensis. It is simply an administrative document from the early part of the fourth century showing that Diocletian had divided the empire into 12 geographic units, okay? Now, over the course of the next century, the Tetrarchy faded away, and there were several administrative changes and reorganizations that took place some dioceses were combined, others were split in two, and the end result was a 13-way division of the Roman Empire. And that is recorded for us in what's called the Notitia Dignitatum from the latter part of the 4th century, and it shows 13 dioceses as the final division of the Roman Empire. And, and this is a point that's worth emphasizing. Historically, people who are trying to understand Daniel have been looking for a 10-way division of the Roman Empire. This process of Diocletian dividing the Roman Empire into 12, and then over the course of the next century, it being re reorganized as some dioceses are combined, others are split for a final result of 13 dioceses. Nobody would have taken notice because they were looking for a 10-way split. And so the 13-way division actually occurs, and nobody stands up and takes notice. And the reason was, is that they had not harmonized Daniel chapter 7 with Revelation 17. Daniel chapter 7 says that there were 10 horns and a little horn came up who had removed three. And in Revelation 17, it says the lamb returns and the beast and 10 horns, not seven, have to make, make war with him. And that shows that Daniel knew about 13 horns. He knew the little horn had removed three of the first horns, which were 13, leaving 10 because each beast in, in Daniel chapter 7 is shown just before the next empire rises up. And it turns out, that three of those horns or three of those dioceses had been uh, basically aggregated by a single entity just before the Roman Empire handed off the administration of the empire to the successor. And so I want to emphasize that this 13-way division can actually be pinpointed in history to a single decade between 373 and 383 AD. And as late as 373 AD, the Roman province of Egypt was still located within the civil diocese of Oriens, and so Alexandria was actually a lower-tier city within the diocese of the East, which was administered from Antioch. But by 383 AD, we have a Roman communication making formal reference to the diocese of Egypt, because the diocese of Egypt had been created by splitting the diocese of East, the East in two. And so you have the final division of the Roman Empire in 13 ways, between 373 and 383 AD, with Egypt being administered from Alexandria, the Diocese of the East being administered from Antioch, 
and the Diocese of Italy being administered from Milan. Okay, so that final 13-way division of the empire happened in the latter part of the 4th century. Now, students of church history will also notice that a very important church council took place during the same time period, and that was the Council of Constantinople in uh, 381 AD. The church at Constantinople had called a council, and in the third canon of the Council of Constantinople, they declared that because Constantinople is New Rome, the Bishop of Constantinople is to enjoy the privileges of honor after the Bishop of Rome. Now, this, again, the reason that it even declares, the canon even addresses the issue of New Rome is because the administrative capital of the empire had shifted. And so, having risen in prominence by the end of the 4th century, Constantinople dared to claim that it had it had privileges of honor like that, like the Bishop of Rome, and possibly uh, second only to the Bishop of Rome. Well, that created a bit of, of stir in Rome, and Rome responded with a council the next year. And this is the point at which Roman Catholicism rebuffs Constantinople for claiming that it is equal or equal with Rome or second only to Rome in the empire. And the Bishop of Rome responds saying that only the three sees of Peter can claim that privilege and honor, and among them, Rome is the first. Okay, so this is the response of the Council of Rome in 382 AD, the following year. And this is basically a, re a rebuttal and basically a rebuffing of the church at Constantinople for thinking uh thinking above its station, uh, so to speak. So here's what the Council of Rome said. It says, We have also thought necessary to say, although the universal Catholic Church diffused throughout the world is the single bride of Christ, however, the Holy Roman Church is given first place by the rest of the churches without the need for a synodical decision, but from the voice of the Lord our Savior in the gospel uh, obtained primacy. That is, uh, citing the words of the gospel, uh, is that you are Peter, and upon this rock I shall build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. So, so here the Council of Rome, I'm speaking parenthetically, of course, the Council of Rome is saying, hey, Rome enjoys its prominence because the Lord said he would build his church upon Peter. Okay? So, continuing now with the Council of Rome, it says, Therefore, first is the seat at the Roman church of the apostle Peter, having no spot or wrinkle or any other defect. However, the second place was given in the name of, the, of blessed Peter to Mark, his disciple and gospel writer at Alexandria, and who himself wrote down the word of truth directed by Peter the apostle in Egypt and gloriously consummated his life in martyrdom. Indeed, the third place is held at Antioch of the most blessed and honorable apostle Peter, who lived there before he came to Roma, and where first the name of the new race of the Christians was heard. Okay, so this uh, he's using the Latin uh, the Latin term for Rome, which is Roma. And notice what was said at that council, and this is 382 AD. It's right smack dab in the middle of this section between 373 and 383 AD that Constantinople was claiming to be equal or second in prominence to Rome. And Rome responds and says, no, 
Jesus said he would found his church on Peter, and Peter came to Rome and died here. And Peter sent his, uh, his disciple Mark to Alexandria. And Peter went to Antioch, which is the place where uh, people were first called Christians. And therefore, the, the seat of authority in the church is possessed by the sees of Peter, Rome, Alexandria, and Antioch. Now, in, um, in the next century, a couple centuries later, actually, Pope Gregory the Great described these Petrine Seas, and when I say the Petrine Seas, it basically means the, literally the seats of Peter. He described them as a single entity, claiming that they were in fact a seat of one. And he recites the thinking of the Council of Rome in 382. He says, Wherefore, though there are many apostles, yet with regard to the principality itself, the see of the prince of the apostles alone has grown strong in authority, which in three places is the see of one. For he himself exalted the see of Rome, in which he deigned even to rest and end the present life. He himself adorned the see of Alexandria, to which he sent his disciple Mark as evangelist. He himself established the see of Antioch, in which, though he was to leave it, he sat for seven years. It is the see of one, and one see, over which by divine authority three bishops now preside. That's from Gregory the Great, Book 7, Epistle 40, to Eulogius, Bishop of Alexandria. So here, the Bishop uh, bishop of Rome is saying, there are three bishops who rule jointly, the Bishop of Rome owning the preeminence, all three of them being a see of one, because they all trace from Peter, and therefore the church is ruled by a see of one, which is fact in in three places is a sea of one, all three of which trace themselves to Peter in some way. And this is not just an ancient doctrine that has long since been forsaken by the church. Um, Pope Benedict in his book, uh, Pope Benedict XVI, uh, he confirmed Rome's claim to continuity through Petrine succession and made reference to those same Petrine seas. He says, it was to be a written record of the continuity of apostolic succession which was concentrated in the three Petrine Seas, Rome, Antioch, and Alexandria, among which Rome, as the site of Peter's martyrdom, was in turn preeminent and truly normative. That's from his book, Called to Communion, The Petrine Succession in Rome. That's uh, from that chapter. So, so here we have a situation where the Roman Empire, we have narrowed down a single decade when the Roman Empire was divided 13 ways, Based on our understanding of Daniel chapter 7, this was the point in time when we should take notice. We should identify someone who raises himself up and claims three of them. What we have seen is that the Roman, uh, the Roman bishop claimed as uh, sitting in the see of Peter at Rome. He ruled over the entire church along with the bishop who sat in Alexandria and the bishop who sat in Antioch. And what we've noticed and uh, this will become uh, significant in just a moment. Alexandria, of course, by then was the metropolis of the Diocese of Egypt. Antioch, of course, was the metropolis of the Diocese of the East. But Rome wasn't really the metropolis of the Diocese of Italy. Milan was. And we're going to, in a few minutes, walk through how the Roman bishop ended up 
subsuming the three capital cities of the Diocese of Italy, Egypt, and the East under himself in order to establish that See of One, thus claiming three of the thirteen dioceses of the Roman Empire, and rising up and ruling among the remaining ten. So, are you with me so far, Tim? Yeah, that's um, <laughs> it's a lot of good stuff right there. I'm going to have to push rewind and listen to that again. Um, I just want to remind everybody, uh, this is this is some heavy stuff, but uh, Tim has also written an article on this on uh, his blog, whitehorseblog.com. The article that we're referring to is titled A Sea of One, so you can just go to the search uh, column and type in A Sea of One. Um, and then an, another article, which I, I think might be of interest, um, we, we referenced it, uh, referenced a point earlier uh, in which uh, Tim was saying that uh, this has been missed, and I think that uh, this article written by Tim is also of interest. It's titled, What the Fathers Feared Most. And so go ahead and check out that article. Um, the fathers uh, feared that they might miss the Antichrist coming, and uh, he does a great job of documenting that from history. So yeah, I'm, I'm with you. I've, I've gone through this stuff before. Uh, so that's just for our listeners to to hang in there with us. This is uh, uh, and really, uh, Tim. There's really nothing that I can add to what you're saying. So I'm just gonna I'm gonna get out of the way so that way you can you can uh, continue on. So okay, okay. So well, this is this is a lot of interesting information. What, what and I hope people can digest it. Perhaps they'll they'll have to listen to it to a few times. Um, the the notes and other information. Basically, the the essence of the, the the historical documentation for all this can be found on the blog under the various articles. Uh, but but let's address two important issues here: is that um, the um, the little horn of Daniel chapter seven is to assume civil power. All the beasts that we have seen in Daniel chapter seven has civil power: the Babylonian Empire, the Medo-Persian Empire, the Greek Empire, the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire ends up being fragmented based on our harmonization of Daniel 7 and Daniel uh, in Revelation 17. We understand that there were, in fact, 13 horns to start. Three of them were subsumed under a single little horn, which came up among the remaining 10. Uh, but that little horn is supposed to take on civil power and authority. So we have to ask, when did, the Rome, did Roman Catholicism become a civil power? Now, in addition to three horns being uprooted, and in this case right now we're talking about the three horns of the diocese of Italy, Egypt, and the East. Daniel chapter 7 also says that this little horn will subdue three kings. And if the bishop of Rome had in fact been the bishop of the diocese of Italy, then we would have a problem because he doesn't really uproot himself or subdue himself because he's basically the king of that diocese. What we'll find when we go through our analysis of how Roman Catholicism, and particularly the Pope at Rome, the Bishop at Rome, subdued three kings, we'll walk through Milan, Alexandria, and Antioch and show how each one in succession had a primacy of which Rome would be jealous and therefore Rome had to remove it from the equation. And we're going to walk through that in a second. But I think something that will be very interesting to our listeners 
is that this is about the time, this latter part of the 4th century, is about the time that the bishops of the empire began to take on increasing civil responsibilities. And this is what led them to become a, uh, a civil power to be reckoned with throughout the empire. And what we find is by the end of the 4th century, the whole empire is basically being ruled by monks and bishops. And that's the civil power that we were supposed to watch out for because this little horn in Daniel chapter 7 was going to come up and take civil power. And so we're going to look at both of those things. When did Roman Catholicism become a civil power? And when did Roman Catholicism subdue three, three kings? But let's start with um, Roman Catholicism being a civil power. Um, this It began, although I'm going to mention Constantine, but this isn't this, this wasn't the beginning of the little horn. This was just the church doing something that it shouldn't have done, and that is it became a servant to the state. And what happened is that Constantine, in addition to reorganizing the empire, also reformed the judiciary. What was happening is that the emperor's throne was being constantly bothered by all sorts of administrative appeals uh, of rulings from lower courts. And so there's just a long line of people trying to get to the emperor to, to ask him to consider an appeal of a lower, lower court's ruling. And what happened in this process is that Constantine ended up conscripting the bishops of the empire to aid him in handling all these appeals. And so what happened is the church started accepting appeals and listening to them. And if you look at the, the Council of Sardica, in uh, 344 AD, you have uh, a very clear case of the bishops of the empire trying to deal with the fact that the emperor had conscripted them to handle legal issues. And they were required, it was a tedious and complicated process, and they were required to write down everything, all evidence and all opinions had to be written down and forwarded to the court for approval. And so the bishops had become entangled in legal obligations that consumed their time and resources. And they it, it began to pull them away from the responsibility to basically be administering the word to Christ's sheep. And they began to handle legal cases for the emperor. Now, also under Emperor Constantine, the church began to be viewed as a conduit for distributing uh, the state's welfare. Uh, early in the process, the obligations that came with the function were considered uh, an imposition, and they were not considered an honor. They were basically a disruption, and they were not welcomed. Um, the emperor, for example, had decreed that all funerals had to be administered by the church and established that all revenues for the services of funerals must be paid directly to the church. Um, that's from uh, that's from S.P. Scott's uh, The Civil Law Volume 16, a very interesting read about the enactments of Justinian, who, uh, who said that uh, they were going to start using the church to distribute welfare. Uh, Constantine had also sent grain to the church in Alexandria for the support of certain widows. Now, now taking care of widows was the church's responsibility, but the emperor got involved in that. And uh, he said, uh, it also says that he, he sent abundant provisions for the necessities of the poor to the church in Heliopolis. And this was all born of good intentions, uh, but the actions were initially interpreted as a trouble and a pretense to the early Christian writers. I'm citing, for example, Athanasius in his Apology Contra Arianos, or the Apology Against the Arians, Part 1, 
chapter 1, paragraph 18, and Eusebius, the life of Constantine, book 3, chapter 58. These guys are writing about the, the largesse of the state, you know, basically jumping on the bandwagon of caring for the poor, and thus using the bishops of the church to distribute welfare. And so the the church uh, obliged the emperor. I'm sure that it was largely uh, out of respect to the emperor trying to uh, honor the king uh, and, and basically show respect to him, but it was by no means considered a scriptural obligation and certainly wasn't part of the bishop's responsibilities. And this wasn't going to end well. Now, this is, again, this mid-early 4th century, mid-4th century. The church is doing its best to obey the emperor, handle cases that are being litigated, uh, manage the appeals process for the emperor, and forward opinions to him for final consideration, or, uh, or distribute his largesse and his generosity to the widows and the poor. And it didn't take long for those who became entangled in the state welfare function to realize just how influential and wealthy they could become by performing the service on behalf of the emperor. Uh, George of Alexandria, for example, had used his position to corner the market on funerals and made a profit on every corpse that was buried. That's from uh, Epiphanius uh, Panarian 3.1.76 and uh, 1.5-6. This is Epiphanius writing in the latter part of the 4th century complaining that George of Alexandria was making a lot of money because the the uh, emperor had decided that the church had to handle funerals. And what happened is that the churches became distribution centers where the poor of the city gathered to receive their daily provisions from the hands of the bishop, who himself had received it from the emperor. And the bishop thus aggregated to himself a considerable following in the city. And if you think about what happens in today's modern welfare state, is that whoever is the conduit through which the that generosity of the state is delivered ends up owning the process and basically can control the people for whom the uh, the goods and wares are, are are finally intended it it marries the church to a secular administrative process and the only way that can end is with utter compromise of the responsibilities of the bishops to care properly for the core, for the poor so what happens is that as the bishops become the place and the means, uh, the residence of the bishop or the church where the bishop presides becomes the distribution center. And as people were attracted to these distribution centers, the poor became, uh, uh, basically, they, they began to be mobilized as part of a symbolic retinue of, of the bishop. They basically followed him around. And uh, their presence in the bishop's following, along with that of uh, monks and consecrated virgins symbolized uh, consecrated virgins symbolized the unique texture of the bishop's power, and uh, this work that was being done on behalf of the emperor ended up aggregating to the bishop all sorts of power and a following. And in fact, what we find is that the works of the bishops to distribute the largesse of the state didn't really alleviate the condition of the poor. But it carried a clear emotional message that was closely watched by contemporaries. And being made visible, the poor were also made amenable to control. So what we have is as the bishops begin to take on state responsibilities that are assigned by the emperor, they begin to have a following of people who can be controlled. And what we find is that control rather than charity was the effect of the bishops becoming the, quote, lovers of the poor and the administrators of the civil welfare state. They began to control the poor as a demographic instead of as 
people who were there to care for and shepherd. And what happens when you have a group of people like that, they can be mobilized to do the bishop's bidding. In fact, that's what we find. Ambrose wrote uh, in the latter part of the fourth century saying that he could calm disturbances, but he could also incite them if he wanted, if he was moved by, if the church was moved by some offense, uh, offense against God or an insult to the church. That's from uh, Ambrose chapter, uh, Epistle 40, paragraph 6. So, so here we have you know, bishops in the latter part of the 4th century recognizing that they're beginning to wield a tremendous power. And what's, what's interesting is we end up seeing this, uh, this tendency of bishops to begin to control crowds of people because they've been entangled in the welfare state. And what happens is that those people begin to be a mob that basically becomes an urban militia that operates at the beck and call of the bishop in the metropolitan cities. And so I'm quoting from Brown's book here. It's uh, page 103. Peter Brown, in his 1988 historical lectures at the University of Madison, Power and Persuasion in Late Antiquity is published by the University of Wisconsin in 1992. He talks about bishops being considered lovers of the poor, but in fact, that was just a euphemism because, in fact, he was, uh, as Brown shows, that they became conduits of the welfare state and they had assembled to themselves a large, a large following, but did not really alleviate their condition as as poor people and destitute people, but rather aggregated to himself what became an urban militia. And so reading from that, from Brown now, notice that he's describing, he says this is happening everywhere in the empire, but he said the, the basically the most prominent examples can be found in Alexandria, Antioch, and Rome. So uh, here I'm quoting from Brown now. It says, uh, while the patriarch of Alexandria became notorious for his use of such groups, he was by no means alone. The patriarch of Antioch also commanded a threatening body of lecticari, or pallbearers, for the burial of the urban poor. The extensive development of the underground cemeteries of the Christian community in Rome, the famous catacombs from the early 3rd century onwards, placed at the disposal of the bishop a team of fossores, or grave diggers, skilled in excavating the tufa rock, as strong and as pugnacious as were the legendary Durham coal miners who intervened in the rowdy elections of the 19th century, during the disputed election in which Damasus became bishop of Rome in 366 AD, the Fasores played a prominent role in a series of murderous assaults on the supporters of his rival. Throughout the empire, the personnel associated with the bishop's care of the poor had become a virtual urban militia. And that's Brown, citing from Brown on page 103. So, so the civil power as manifested by the bishops and monks, began to rule the empire. And this is a citation from Edward Gibbon in his Rise and Fall of the Roman Empire. And this is quoting from volume three. He describes a situation at the end of the fourth century when the emperor's, uh, emperor outlawed pagan religions. And what resulted was that bishops led armies out onto the field to destroy the pagans and remove their temples. And so this is uh, quoting from Gibbon's Rise and Fall says, the laws of the emperors exhibit some symptoms of a milder disposition, but their cold and languid efforts were insufficient to stem the torrent of enthusiasm and rapine 
which was conducted or rather impelled by the spiritual rulers of the church. In Gaul, the holy Martin, bishop of Tours, marched at the head of his faithful monks to destroy the idols, the temples, and the consecrated trees of his extensive diocese. The prudent reader will judge whether Martin was supported by the aid of miraculous powers or of carnal weapons. In Syria, the divine and excellent Marcellus resolved to level with the ground the stately temples within the diocese of Apamea. He took the field in person against the powers of darkness. A number of troop of soldiers and gladiators marched under the Episcopal banner, and he successively attacked the villages and country temples of the Diocese of Apamea. Now, I want to ask our listeners to think about the urban militia that had been aggregated to the bishops of Rome and Antioch and Alexandria, and the description of Martin of Tours uh, leading monks into battle under his banner, and Marcellus leading soldiers and gladiators into battle under his banner and ask, is this the religion that Jesus founded? And the answer is a resounding no. And yet this is the condition of the church or what was called the church at the latter part of the fourth century. And what we see unfolding before us is that the church has gone from being a church that shepherds the sheep, ministers to the needy, cares for the widows, preaches the gospel to the world, and and looks after the destitute. And it became an administrative function of the empire, handling judicial appeals, handling distribution of the welfare state, handling funerals throughout the empire with decrees from the emperor that they be paid directly for their services. And what happens? The bishops, of course, are unable to resist the carnality of such a role. And by the latter part of the fourth century, they begin to, to make huge amounts of money on funerals. They're the channels through which welfare is distributed. They gather to themselves people under the auspices of care for the poor, when in fact what they've done is gathered to themselves an urban militia. And that urban militia gets led into battle under their banner to destroy the, the pagans in their temples. And and I look at this and I think, is, is this the heavenly kingdom that Christ came to establish? And the answer is no, it's not. The important thing for us to see is, and this is what is reported in the historical record, and nobody denies this, the fact is, by the latter part of the fourth century, the church had taken on the civil sword of the emperor. And it was only a few years earlier that the emperor himself had declared that Roman Catholicism was the, was the religion of the empire. And eventually the emperor basically abdicated the title of Pontifex Maximus. And it was shortly after that that the Bishop of Rome started taking on that title. So <clears throat> the question that we started with at least in this section, was when did Rome become Rome, the Roman Catholic Church become a civil power? And that occurred in the latter part of the 4th century, and you can, you can hear it in the reports of the historians, whether it's Gibbon or Brown, talking about what was happening in the Roman Empire at the latter part of the 4th century, when the bishops, who initially started just wanting to help the emperor distribute food for the poor or handle his huge caseload, ended up with such power 
in the empire that they were they were able to basically conscript an urban militia to do their bidding and basically they ended up doing much more than the emperors even wanted them to going out into the countryside and destroying all the temples and and basically uh persecuting the heathen as it were and that wasn't necessarily the role that had been assigned to the church to take on that civil power so the next question we wanted to get to is that how did rome uh subdue three kings in the process because uh we talked about the roman uh, roman catholic church uprooting three horns and we're referring to the diocese of italy egypt and the east as they were ruled from their three the three capitals of uh, rome alexandria and antioch but i i want to pause just briefly to go back to something i said at the very beginning that for the brief period from 296 a.d to the latter part of the fourth century it was milan not rome that was the chief metropolis of the diocese of italy so in order to aggregate the sea of one as uh, as the several popes referred to it and we we talked earlier about the popes describing the sea of one or the uh, the church being founded on Peter and therefore Peter and his three locations that were influenced by him either in person or by his disciple Mark must therefore be the foundation of the church. Uh, when did the Bishop of Rome subdue three kings? And that happened at the latter part of the fourth century. And by kings, we're using kings in the sense that Daniel did in Daniel seven and also in Daniel eight. Is uh, the king is a geographic is sometimes a geographic entity it is sometimes a political entity sometimes it's a personal entity and we uh, we know that because when we look at the 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 goat of daniel chapter 8 uh, the angel tells daniel that the goat is the king of the greeks and the horn between its eyes is its first king and then it says that the horn is broken and four kings come up in its place and then out of one of those horns, a king comes up who does some things. And we'll talk about Daniel chapter 8 a little bit later. But we're talking about administrative and civil power in the Roman Empire. And what we find is that by the end of the 4th century, that is devolved to the bishops in the chief metropoli of the diocese. And the question is, at what point did the bishop of Rome subdue three kings? We'll start with Milan. In uh, Milan was, as I mentioned, from 296 AD to the latter part of the 4th century, was considered the chief metropolis of the Diocese of Italy. Athanasius refers to it that way twice in his uh, History of the Arians, Part 4, Chapter 33. And he also refers to it that way in Apologia de Fuga, which is basically uh, his explanation for his flight in Chapter 4. So we can see from the historical records, both in the civil and the ecclesiastical realm, that Rome did not start out as the chief metropolis of the Diocese of Italy after Diocletian reorganized the empire. And yet today, the Bishop of Rome is addressed as the primate of Italy. And the fact is, for the bulk of the 4th century, the Bishop of Rome was not considered the bishop of the metropolis. Uh, it was not considered the, uh, the bishop of Italy he was considered the Bishop of Rome, whereas the Bishop of Milan was considered the Bishop of Italy. So when did Rome supplant Milan as the chief metropolis? Well, that happened in 378 AD. And what happened is at a council of Rome in 378, 
a letter of petition was sent to the emperors Gratian and Valentinian II, requesting that they recognize and enforce a policy that all metropolitan bishops, including that of Milan, were to subordinate themselves to Rome. The letter specifically names the civil vicar of Italy in Milan as an officer who may arrest uncooperative metropolitan bishops and bring them to Rome for trial. So here we have the Bishop of Rome appealing to the emperor, asking that he assist in subordinating Milan to the city of Rome. And sure enough, by the end of the fourth century, Rome again is the chief metropolis of the city of the Diocese of Italy. So Milan was the first king that needed to be subdued. In the Diocese of Italy, Milan had the primacy, and that primacy was not something that Rome could share, and so Rome ends up subordinating Milan to itself, and that happened in 378 AD. So with the Diocese of Italy safely under his belt, only Alexandria and Antioch stood in the way of the Roman bishop's ambition. And so the, there were two problems with Alexandria and Antioch. The problem with Ant Alexandria was that in the eyes of the emperor, the city of Alexandria stood eye to eye to Rome, with Rome in stature. When the emperor declared Roman Catholicism to be the official religion of the empire in his, uh, in his decree, De Fide Catholica, he identified it as the religion of both the pontiff in Rome and the bishop of Alexandria. That was a status that Rome could not long share with another bishop. The problem with Antioch was that there yet existed a perception that Peter had begun his ministry first in Antioch, and therefore Antioch actually had the chronological primacy over Rome, at least in the, in the sense of a timeline, because Peter had gone to Antioch first. So for this reason, Antioch enjoyed some privileges on that account. And in fact, uh, Chrysostom, by the end of the fourth century, was still saying that uh, Peter had uh, been bid by the Lord to tarry for a long time in Antioch. And so you have Rome in a situation where, from the perspective of the religion of the empire, it is listed on equal terms with Alexandria. When it comes to chronological primacy, Antioch comes first before Rome. And when it comes to the primacy within the Diocese of Italy, Milan had the primacy. And Rome is facing three different cities with three different types of primacy. And Rome doesn't like that. And eventually what happens in response to Constantinople's claim that, that Constantinople should be second to Rome, the Council of Rome responded in 382 AD with the theory of the three Petrine Seas, or the three seats of Peter, saying that Rome, Alexandria, and Antioch were the three chief seats of the Roman Catholic religion, and that among them, Rome was the chief. And so there we have, basically, that's our history, a very detailed history lesson into how the Roman Catholic religion came up a little horn came up, subdued three kings, uprooted three horns, claimed them for himself, and then rose among the remaining ten to a civil prominence that ended up being the heir of the Roman Empire, the successor to the pagan Roman Empire. Up came Roman Catholicism, claiming three of the horns of the divided Roman Empire for itself, uprooting three horns, subduing three kings, and rising up among the remaining ten dioceses. And what's going to be, I think, 
probably the most difficult challenge for people to digest is that we're looking at the three Petrine apostolic sees of Rome, Antioch, and Alexandria, which typically is viewed by church historians as the cradle of the church. And yet, the thing that most church historians look back on with favor, trying to find the root and ground and the apostolic continuity of our religion, they always end up looking through the lens of Rome, Antioch, and Alexandria, which by then were the three metropolitan cities of the three dioceses of Italy, Egypt, and the East, three of the 13 dioceses of the Roman Empire. And as we see from the arguments of the bishops from 382 onward, the church was founded on Peter. Peter had established three apostolic sees. Those three in three places are a see of one, ruling jointly with the Bishop of Rome in charge. And that was the fulfillment of Daniel's vision, that the Roman Empire would eventually divide 13 ways. A little horn would grab three of them and uproot them, subduing three kings in the process, and then arise among the remaining 10. And that's what Daniel saw in Daniel chapter 7. So the question where that leaves us now is that uh, I, want to, I want to give a highlight of what we're going to be getting into next because the, the question that is going to be raised from this, and uh, I, I, actually there's a lot of questions that are going to be raised from this, but among the questions that must be raised and in fact must be answered are questions that originate in Daniel chapter 11. And the reason this matters is because in Daniel chapter 11, it is largely assumed by most expositors that at some point in the chapter, Daniel changes his frame of reference and stops talking about the divided Greek empire and started talking about some future Antichrist that would be arising later. And they don't know exactly when that point is, but it's theorized anywhere from Daniel 11.21 to Daniel 11.39 when the future Antichrist is discussed. And what happens because of that is that in addition to the mistake of looking for the Antichrist to come up among ten and subdue, and subdue three of the ten in a ten-way division of the Roman Empire, people also expect Antichrist to erect the abomination of desolation and they also expect him to invade Egypt. And I can say that the Bishop of Rome, to my knowledge, has never invaded Egypt, and he did not set up the abomination of desolation. In fact, the little horn of Daniel 7 was never predicted or prophesied to invade Egypt or set up the abomination of desolation. But because there is an assumption on the changing frame of reference in Daniel chapter 11 that leads people to expect that the little horn would come up in Daniel chapter 7, and then set up the abomination of desolation described in Daniel chapter 8, Daniel chapter 11, and Daniel chapter 9, and also invade Egypt because the last six verses of Daniel chapter 11 have an antagonist, the king of the north, invading Egypt. Roman Catholicism, again, gets a pass because they never invaded Egypt. And in fact, that would be one of the arguments they use against being identified as the little horn of Daniel 7, because they aren't the guy that invades Egypt at the end of Daniel chapter 11. And so what we're going to do is show 
that the, the, the historical attempt to find the Antichrist in Daniel chapter 11 has led to us missing the rise of this little horn of Roman Catholicism at the latter part of the 4th century. And in fact, prohibited people from actually identifying the Roman Catholic Church as the beast of Revelation 13 for many centuries beyond that because they were looking for a 10-way division and what happened was a 13-way division. And then when they did finally begin to identify Roman Catholicism as Antichrist, they were expecting him to invade Egypt. <laughs> and he never did, and he was never predicted to do. And so we'll talk about that in our next episode. All right. Well, there you have it. Um, man, I, I don't even know what to say. I've got nothing to add to that. Uh, I really appreciate you coming on, Tim. I just want to say thank you for all the work that you've put into this. Um, so we are going to continue this series. We're going to continue. Uh, Tim is going to be uh, coming on a lot more frequently now. Uh, we are looking at a possibly a 20 episodes out of this or 30 episodes. We don't know how long this is going to take, but I really, really want to uh, give Tim the opportunity to present this stuff on, on uh, Semper Reformanda Radio. And I'm so grateful that he's partnering with us. Uh, and listen, we know that this stuff, uh, th there's a lot to this. So if you have questions, comments or concerns, or if you want to just shoot something out there, you can always email us at semper.reformanda.radio at gmail.com. Uh, so Tim, I want to say thanks again for coming on. Thank you, Tim. It's been a pleasure. We'll see everybody next week. All right. God bless. Talk to you then. Bye. What could I have done? Could never save my debt too great for deeds to pay. But God, my Savior, made a way.